Powered by the mysterious Element Zero, it's the astronomical phenomenon known as Geek Top 5! Yay! No matter how much you have, it's never enough for upgrades. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And it's been a heck of a couple of weeks, and we're going to tell you the top five reasons why. Number five, Legendary Entertainment has gotten their hands on the Dune franchise. Legendary Entertainment is a huge production company. They're, you've probably seen their logo in front of all the summer blockbusters you've seen in the last few years. The weird Celtic knot shield thing. Yeah, like the, the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, a lot, of the, a lot of the DC movies they've been involved in, Pacific Rim, just anything really cool you've seen on the big screen last five years or so has usually had their name on it. But have they met their match? That is now, a good question. Yeah. Now, Fra- Frank Herbert's Dune, 1965. It is the science fiction novel. Uh, it, it's like I think it was about a decade ago. It is the best-selling science fiction novel on the planet Earth of all time ever. Does that uh, include Star Wars novels? That includes Star Wars novels. Wow. No, this is it's sold all over the world and it's phenomenal. And it's you know arguably Star Wars can tend to be a bit more of a space opera than science fiction. This is this is literature. This is mm. science fiction. It deals with politics, religion, technology, gender dynamics, ecology. It has a lot to say. Like many books that are awesome literature have a lot to say, people want to try to bring it to the screen, and it doesn't always work out. The first notable example of this was uh, this weird sort of... It's, it's hard to say indie director, because indie is such a modern-day term, but he was legitimately out there... Getting financing, his name is Alejandro Jodorowsky, didn't use the big studios, he was from Europe and and just did these ridiculous weird movies. He decided to do a Dune movie, he never read the book, he wrote a script that would have taken 14 hours to film, and it went, he completely lost control of of it. But it was so filled with ideas, a lot of the people involved ended up making Alien with Ridley Scott... And and then it just continued from there. Like, eventually it went to David Lynch, another really weird director who sort of made the project his own. Yeah, this was 1984, and David Lynch, he did actually get it out. It was yeah. actually Dune the movie. wasn't very good. Didn't make, you know, it lost money. It was reviewed critically poorly. Had Patrick Stewart in it. Yeah, and Sting. And Sting. Yeah. Um, now, you're, you're a Dune guy, right? I'm a Dune guy. And I am not. I've, I haven't even seen the David Lynch one. How... I mean, is it, where does the problem lie? Like, I know there are a lot of revisionists now who look at that movie and say it's good in hindsight. Now, in hindsight, it's sort of a cult classic. Um, it does take some liberties from the source material, not like in a terrible way, but mostly it's just it's a bad movie. It just it doesn't follow well, and the pacing's wrong. It's just sometimes movies are bad. I've also read that there's the, the original cut of the movie was about three hours, and they had to trim a lot to get it down to a two-hour regular release. I, I can believe it. I can, they, I can see that. Um, either way, that was in 84, 84, 84. It came out. Not great. Oh, yeah, here we go. So, yeah, it cost $40 million to make, and it made 30 And it just generally sucks. There have been attempts to recut it. Mm-hmm. I think there's a few different cuts out there now. I mean, they added some stuff that wasn't in the books. They took out some stuff that really should have been in there. Uh, David Lynch seems to kind of disown it. He doesn't really talk about it in interviews. He's never wanted to do a director's cut, which would be really interesting to see. Like, maybe if you did get to the three-hour version, it would be closer to the source material and maybe be a more complete movie. Maybe. But uh, that uh, that seems to be one of the, the sort of problems with this, wrestling it down to a one-movie-length thing. Although that... I guess is less of an issue now where we're so sequel crazy. Yeah, but does it have to be a movie? 
right? Because following this, Sci-Fi Channel made a mini-series of Dune. They actually followed it up with the second one, but focusing in this is 2000, Sci-Fi Channel made a mini-series of Dune that you know cost half as much. Um, making it a mini-series <laughs> meant they could make it six, like six and a half hours long, which helps. But it's also six and a half hours long, and it deals with some pretty heavy stuff. It gets really slow and weird in the middle. And this was in the early 2000s? This, is, this, this came out in 2000, and then the follow-up miniseries came out in 2003. So, and it, it originally aired on the Sci-Fi Network, right? Or Sci-Fi Channel. Sci-Fi right? Channel. And so, like, a, a, a deep cable channel miniseries in the early 2000s, it's not going to have an amazing budget. No, it does not. So maybe now doing a series of movies based on the one book, it's like every young adult novel series that gets turned into a movie, the last one always seems to get split into two, Harry Potter, Hunger Games, all of that. Maybe if you can take Dune and split that into a multi-volume movie, that makes it something that could be digestible? It could be. It's possible. And it's important to note that Legendary hasn't ironed down exactly what they want to do with it yet. They have the rights, they have the permissions from the estate, Brian Herbert, you know, the heir to the, th- to the, the throne is on board. So they could, I mean, honestly, I feel like TV is more the way to go. Like, I would love to see an HBO-style... Game of Thrones. Yeah, as... that kind of thing. I think that would be a great way to present it. Um, on the off chance you haven't, yeah, you haven't read Dune. Man, I read Dune. it, yeah, I don't know how much I want to get into it because so much of it is important to experience, but it starts off very similar to a young adult story. It stars Paul Atreides... He is, you know, he's a kid. I think he's like 12 at the start of the books. Is he kind of like a he's, Jesus figure? It, it ends up that way, yeah. Mm. He he lives in a society in the future where it's sort of broken. There's like feudal houses who are fighting across planets for like politics and for resources and stuff. And his family gets sort of forcibly relocated to Dune, to Arrakis, which is this desert wasteland. And um, Dune is the one place in, the, in the, this universe where you can get the spice melange which does all kinds of awesome stuff you'll find out about over the course of the books, but the key is that it's the key ingredient for space travel in this universe. So this family is now sitting on a gold mine, which makes them a huge target. His life immediately gets turned upside down, and in the end he sort of becomes like a religious leader, sort of a prophecy thing. They drop that in very early, that there's a destiny for this character, and they take it off and... Whereas in the Hunger Games it would be, you know, he would get a bow and arrow and shoot down spaceships for whatever but in this case it's really an examination of what does that mean hmm. and it's i really liked a thing about the book is that his mother is really the deuteragonist of this book and she okay hold on there what's a deuteragonist like the protagonist but also another protagonist okay paul is this really you no okay the first time i've heard that word paul like paul is the star but the mother also has a huge role to play and we see a lot of the story from her perspective and whereas Paul becomes something more, in a very grand sci-fi way, her perspective remains human. And as much as she is sort of encouraging and building what's going on, she's also sort of fascinated and horrified by what's going on with her own son. And they're occasionally at you know, loggerheads with each other. It's fascinating. Now, so some people say that uh, the reason the John Carter movie didn't really take off and and any of the John Carter-type movies that have happened over the years is because that material, the Ray Bradbury Mars books, have been mined and, like, all the best ideas have been used in Star Wars and and other movies going forward. Is Dune the same thing? Like, Uh, Tatooine is... Dune is very... Here's an example. Dune is a science fiction universe with intergalactic travel where they have no computers. 
They live in a post like Matrix society where there's been the rise of the machines, and they've oh. put that down. And said, okay, and like they and they, one of the prominent religions in this world is thou shalt not make a machine in the image of a human mind. Hmm. How does that work, you ask? You gotta go read this book. Um, legendary. If anyone's gonna do something cool with it, it'll be legendary. I hope so. Um, but we gotta see what they do because it's it it's been proven. People have tried to make this before, and it's blown. Like it, besides the fact it hasn't been as good as the book, it hasn't been a good movie. It hasn't been good TV. Good soundtrack to the miniseries, but it just it has. I don't know that this will work on the screen, but I'm so excited to see if they can do it. All right, so let's move on to number four on the list. Switching gears to Vidya Games. Good old Vidya Games. After ten years... We've been talking about it for a little while because of the tie-in movie and such, but after ten-plus years of development, Final Fantasy XV's out, and against all odds, it's really good. Hmm. <laughs> and it's fun. If you sort of rev- like read the reviews, most of them are the reviewers going, like, I can't believe it. It's actually pretty good. And it's, <laughs> it's so weird. Final Fantasy is a video game franchise that has been hungry for a reboot for a long time. Um, It's built on the bones of very classic role-playing experiences and had its heyday in the 90s, but just doesn't fly anymore. And the last few Final Fantasy games have been these constant misfires of trying to figure out how do we still make this genre... Yeah, genre is a good word for it, actually. It really stands apart. How do we make this genre still relevant, still make it something that people want to play... And they've done it. No, this one, they've hit on something really powerful. They What they've done, essentially they've thrown Final Fantasy into a pot of boiling water and boiled away all the extraneous crap. All the you know, wandering around a village, talking to every villager twice to see if there's any useful information, mm. checking everyone's bookshelves to see if there's a potion or anything. All that's gone. They boiled it away, and what they came out with was strong characters with you know complicated backstories and motivations, a powerful and like epic story, like save the world, kind of story, and, like, gear and leveling up. Like, you know, fighting monsters and getting more stronger as you do it. All the other junk is gone, and they've replaced it with almost a very Western-style RPG element where they have an open world that you explore and learn and do stuff in. And sort of a, like, a Dragon Age or a Red Dead Redemption or a Witcher right. kind of thing. And the two ideas work really well. It also helps that they've modernized it in a way. They've created a world... Where there are still gods, and there's still sort of magic and swords, but there's also guns and cars and gas stations and mechanics. Which is interesting. You know, I was playing this game, and I had some one plot point. I was battling this ancient god for control of powerful magic. And the next plot point, my car got stolen. <laughs> but they sell it really well. That is something that I noticed from the commercials and trailers and whatnot. I'm I'm not really hardcore into the Final Fantasy genre or or universe or whatever you call it, but the Final Fantasy games always tend to be sort of old timey fantasy steampunk or really sort of a weird futuristic thing like a gun sword thing. Yeah, cyberpunk. Whereas with this game and all the commercials and stuff. It seemed it it seemed way more present day and grounded. Like there were subways and and people wandering around and you know regular stores and restaurants. Yeah, like your characters are still a little Final Fantasy ridiculous. They have crazy names and outfits, but and they account for this in the plot. We don't have time to go into details, but you'll get out there and you'll meet characters with names like Dave. <laughs> you know, and Dave is wearing blue jeans and you know he has a gut. Like he's he's just a guy. 
So it's a really good vehicle, I think, for attracting new people to play this thing. And like, we, I realize we don't do this very often on Geek Top 5. We're often disappointed, but you absolutely need to go play this game. I will say this. It does have a bit of a lady problem. Mm. Um, the, the four playable characters in this game, it's, it's a bit of a bromance. And so there's no playable female characters. I'm willing to let that go. But the first character you meet outside of your party is Cindy the Mechanic, who is just the most stereotyped... To, like just you know, designed to pander to fourteen-year-old boys. Like her outfit would get her kicked out of a strip club. <laughs> it's a little tone deaf on that. I will grant you that. But it's worth playing if you're a Final Fantasy fan. It's worth playing if you just like video games. It's something you really should check out. And as geeks, it's delightful. Like they might have actually saved this franchise from being abolished. Now we are also discussed in a previous episode how there was the the movie tie-in to it, and there's all these other tie-ins happening. You've seen the movie, and now you played the game. How does that tie-in work? Is it necessary? Do you have to have seen the movie? You, I mean, you can still play the game. You will have no idea what's going on without really? the tie-in material. Yeah, wow. which is, I mean, it's a tough call because Japanese RPGs usually have such involved and intricate stories that you come out of them kind of going, wait, what happened? So that guy was a clone of an alien <sighs> god who went back in time... Like, it's one of those things that's hard to get away from, so it's hard to say whether or not it's this thing's fault, but no, you start the game in, what is the term, in media reis? In, like, the middle of the story, I yeah. think that's it. you start sort of, like, in, like, these... I feel like I have to act as the universal translator on this episode. I don't pick up a book every now and then, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, you, you start the game, like, you know, these four characters all know each other very well, and you have no idea who they are. Right. And they don't tell you. Um, watching the movie gives you a much better idea of where they are in the world and what's going on and what's the motivations behind a lot of characters. So, if anything, that's kind of a flaw. There's a lot of ancillary material that really adds to the world. But, you know, if you're just playing it for the fun of playing a game, you're not going to care. It's a fun game to play. It's exciting. It's action-packed. Lots of cool stuff happens. I'm so happy it turned out okay. <laughs> I'm happy for you. Let's move on to number three on the list here. We're going to talk about the what I like to call the DCW crossover, the four CW shows based on DC Comics. They had this crossover this week called Invasion, where this alien force invaded, and it was a lot of fun. Has this ever happened on TV before, where they coordinated four television shows to tell one story? I can't say definitively it's never happened before, but I it definitely feels unique to, to television. Four, so... so I should say, first of all, that it was billed as this four-show crossover. The Supergirl episode, like, Supergirl factors into the other shows, but man, her episode felt like... I, I kept watching it being like, when is it going to actually tie in? When is the story going to start? And all you got was, like, a portal opened up in the middle of the episode and then disappeared. Nothing happened. Everyone was like, huh, that portal was weird. Back to the episode. And then at the very end, finally a portal opens and the Flash and his buddy jump through and they talk with, with Supergirl and they get her to join them to help with this problem. Then the Flash episode happens the next night and you get to see the same scene again. And it felt like, why did I even bother watching the Supergirl episode? Well, you're watching it anyway, right? Yeah. Okay, that's fair. So really it was sort of a three-episode, like three episode, four-show crossover. Yeah. Which, okay, is still pretty cool. We've got the Dominators. 
Yes. Did they have the red circles? Is that they something? did. They did. Okay. It was like in the comic books, their their skin is very yellow, and the red dot on their heads is very pronounced. In the show, they were more sort of gray, and the red was just sort of like this faded discoloration on their head. They tried to make it a bit more realistic, or or I guess more what we expect right. from aliens. Less like something out of a seventies comic book. I guess yeah. that's fair. Totally fair. My problem was. You never really got a sense of what they wanted or why or and there was no like central figure. It was this invasion force, but it just seemed sort of like a vague threat, which I guess is fine. I mean, you don't want to take a big villain from the comics and make them a vague threat. You might as well have sort of a forgotten villain from the mm. comics if you're just going to use it as a, uh, the, the instigating incident, incident to bring all these characters together. Which is really what it's about. Right. And it was a lot of fun seeing all the characters. I mean, huge amounts of characters on screen at any given time. Yeah, that... I, I tried to put together a list here. Tell okay. me if I've got everything. <laughs> I've got Green Arrow, Spartan, Speedy, Overwatch, Supergirl, Flash... Apparently Kid Flash? Yeah. Which, okay, fine. Um, Killer Frost. Who's a, that's, wow, okay. Uh, Firestorm, <laughs> The Atom, Heat Wave, White Canary. I think I, I think I missed one, at least. But Vixen shows up. Commander Steel shows up at Jeez, some point. That's huge. It is huge. And it, it, they they aren't all together in every episode. They're, you know, a lot of the Legends characters don't really show up until their episode. There are a lot of Arrow characters that don't really show up until the Arrow episode. But that's another thing. I found the Flash episode, you know, they did a pretty good job of balancing out the regular Flash storylines that were happening as well as continuing the plot of this invasion, making sure all the characters have something to do. So did the Legends of Tomorrow episode. Hmm. The Arrow episode was very much an Arrow episode that just happened to have some of these other characters show up occasionally, which was a little weird. Like, I get it with the Supergirl one. It was completely separate. It was the starting point, I guess. But the Arrow one was Wednesday night. That is like the middle of the crossover. And it contributed. I, I liked what it did. I don't really watch Arrow very much, but I enjoyed the episode. But it didn't really move the plot of the crossover forward. Mm. I think it did more to move the plot of the Arrow characters forward. But right, but ideally, when you have a crossover, lots of different plots become one plot. Mm-hmm. Right, the the best case scenario, like when you team up the X Men and the Avengers, they both have the same stakes, and what yeah. what gets resolved and what doesn't will affect them all. If they had a quick aside where Wolverine has to deal with something, which has happened because he's Wolverine, it, it's it's it kind of feels like well, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Now that that's been a tough balance that comic books have had have struggled with for years with these sort of crossovers, mm-hmm. especially when they're crossovers in the regular books and they aren't just a separate title that's just that storyline. But it's like if it's an X Men crossover and it involves the X Men, the Generation X, X Force, and Excalibur, you want to balance it out so that, or, or I guess try to balance it out so that someone who's just reading Excalibur and doesn't want to read the other books still gets a story that fulfills their interest. But you also want to make it so that people buying the whole crossover get something as well. And best case scenario, if you're only reading Excalibur, now you're intrigued by these other things. Right. Now, and that's where I think Flash and Legends Tomorrow did a better job of of doing that, whereas Arrow felt separate. Same with Supergirl. I mean, Supergirl to a ridiculous extent, where it's like, they might as well, if they ever put a DVD out of this, they might as well not even include the Supergirl episode. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, I generally enjoyed it, but... As with all things, there are places where they they can learn for future crossovers, as I'm sure this is going to become an annual thing. 
And you know, and you mentioned how this is like, like this is this is old news of comic books. These big team up events always, but a lot of the things what they do is when it ends, you can buy the compendium of the team up event. So yeah, it's interesting to think: are they going to sell you know the DVDs of Supergirl and the DVDs of Arrow? What happens with the crossover in that case? Like, if you're collecting all the Arrow DVDs, do you only see that one episode? Hey, for Arrow, that would be fine. <laughs> With the Flash and Legends of Tomorrow episodes, you probably are going to be scratching your head a little bit. Yeah, I, it, like, if you, that's all you're watching, it's going to leave out plot points, right? Yeah, and if I... It's tough to say. I, I, I imagine there's going to be a DVD set that has its own special features that's just going to be that crossover so that they can, uh, you know, get as much as they can out of it. But I also wouldn't be surprised if in the individual box sets for the shows, they also include those episodes because the series are also tied together. They're all made by the same people, all the same production company. It's all easy for them to do that. Mm -hmm. And it would just be weird and incomplete without it. Yeah. Not that people, they've got a great record of being complete stuff anyway. That's true. But yeah, I would be really upset if I was like buying the pack for one of these shows and I didn't get the episodes from the other ones. Mm -hmm. Let's see what they do. It's interesting. So I think that's that's, that's all we got to say about number three on the list. So let's move on to something we can both agree on is awesome. Star Trek Discovery. Star Trek Discovery. We're nervous. <laughs> nervous. We're nervous. Um, but yeah, can't wait. And we finally know who's going to be on this show. Well, we know three of them anyway. You know, it's more than we knew before. Very true. Uh, we've got Doug Jones, Michelle Yeoh, and Anthony Rapp. So Michelle Yeoh is like the only reason anyone here knows her is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And Tomorrow I mean, Never Dies when she was a Bond girl. Yeah, Tomorrow Never Dies. Well, it was okay. Yeah. But... Crouching Tiger was a like it was a big deal when it came out. I remember it. Oh yeah. So she's going to be in it. She's playing the captain of a different ship, hmm. which seems like an odd choice to make as your cast announcement. So I'm trying to find out like is she sort of the main character? Because it doesn't sound like it. The show is the Discovery, and we know that there's a ship called the Discovery, but she's the captain of the starship Shenzhou. Shenzhou. I don't know. I guess so. But. Uh, I, we also already knew that the series wasn't going to focus on a captain. It was going to focus on a, a secondary, sort of like a lieutenant commander. True. So, but, but then one of their major cast members and one of their major reveals is a captain of another ship. Very strange. Yeah. Very compelling. Uh, Doug Jones is a creature actor. Yeah, to me, that was the name that really stuck out. Like, Michelle Yeoh is very cool, very respected, has a great pedigree, but Doug Jones, from a sci-fi perspective, oh my god. Yeah, see, that's interesting to me, because I, like, when I researched him, oh, I know all these things that he's done, but because he's such a creature actor, like, I've never seen his face. I don't yeah. know who he is. Uh, he, like, the one that stood out to me is he played the, the gentleman in Buffy, the episode with the, the monsters, like, everyone's voice gets taken away, and yeah. there's like, the creepy guys in the suits. He's one of those. He's like the main one of those. For me, it was Pan's Labyrinth that stood out, where he's he's the the one thing with the eyes and the hands. Yeah, the oh, pale so thing. Cool. I think he plays a couple of different creatures in Pan's Labyrinth. The other one, the big one for me, was uh, Abe Sapien from the Hellboy movies. He's uh, Hellboy's fish guy friend. So good. Ah, oh, he's just I I love watching him work. I think he was he did the motion capture for Silver Surfer in the Fantastic Four Silver Surfer movie too. Yeah, he's yeah. like the original motion capture guy where like CG stuff was is done to him later. Yeah, he's he's got sort of like the Andy Circus thing going but for practical effects. Yeah. And, yeah. So he's playing the uh, Lieutenant Saru, an alien science officer. Big surprise. Yeah, from a species we've never heard of before. Yeah, which which bugs me. I mean, 
Like, I get, you know, new, new life and new civilizations, but go find it. If they're already members of Starfleet? Like, this bugs me in the Kelvin timeline, too, in the J.J. movies. There are all these weird aliens on the ship, and we're just, we just have to accept that they're, they're there. If they're new aliens, I want to know more about... Like, there's that weird... Like, the girl whose head opens up and he can hide the MacGuffin in it. What is that? I want to know more about that, but I don't get it. But I think that's... Uh, like, going back and watching old Star Trek stuff, I think that's part of that the, the series. There were always weird sort of one-off aliens that showed up and it was like, oh, well, this is from this species. Everyone knows that species. But they kept reusing them. Like, when you see a Bolian, you know it's a Bolian. When you see yeah. an Andorian, you know it's an Andorian. When you see a Vulcan, you know that it's a Vulcan. Like... There are established stuff in Star Trek that makes it feel like Star Trek, and I just, I don't know. I'll give well, it like, a chance. What about the weird wrinkly guy that sends Worf out to find his dad on, on that Dude, next-gen it's episode? It's Star Trek, anyway, weird wrinkly. Like, you're going to have to narrow so it down. so many weird aliens that just show up for one-offs on, on uh, Star Trek. Yeah, but if they're in the crew, if they're on the bridge, I want to know more about that. All right. any case, another one, the third guy, Anthony Rapp. Who's playing Lieutenant Stamets, who's a fungus guy, the science guy. Yeah. Um, I don't know anything he's done. Apparently he's big on Broadway. Yeah, the only thing he's really... The, the biggest thing he's known for as far as filmed material is uh, Rent. When they did Rent the movie, he like reprised his role from Broadway and he was he did the Rent character. That's it. That's, that's it. all I know. From... Yeah, that's all we got. Um, interesting choices. You know, like, like Michelle Yeoh, former movie star... Um, now she's doing TV stuff, fine. Guy from Broadway, now he's doing TV stuff. Or sort of TV because of this whole CBS thing. It, it's, it's TV. Let's call it TV. This is modern TV. The, the right. streaming things are like the future of TV. All right, fine, TV. Um, <laughs> interesting. And all. And I guess part of the reason why I'm so like, like oh, I don't know about new alien species and oh, an alien song, like, is because I'm so in, like, invested. I can't wait to see more. Yeah. Um, I just want to know more about the story. Yeah, I want to know what they're doing and why they're there and what's going on. Uh, but maybe I don't want to know more about the story. Maybe I just want to see it and have that be the story. Uh, I'm so conflicted. Discovery's still a long way off, but if they're announcing cast members now, hopefully we'll start seeing some real stuff. I'm sure we'll start seeing photos of them in uniforms. Oh, oh I can't wait. Oh, <laughs> so excited. <laughs> so next, number one on the list, also something very near and dear to our hearts. Yeah. Mass Effect. Mass been, Effect. Been talking about that a lot lately. Very recently, I believe it was Thursday night, they uh, debuted a new gameplay trailer for yeah. Star for Mass Effect Andromeda. Yeah, a, a poll to the Game Awards, which are exactly what they sound like. Don't worry about that. <laughs> the N7 day happened, and we got the story, what's going on. We got to see some characters and look at the world. We've never actually seen the game, how it plays. Now we have. Go seek this out if you haven't seen it already. It's on Mass Effect's YouTube channel. It's also on our website. Uh, it looks great. Mass Effect has always been a little more gameplay heavy than other RPGs, because it's not an RPG. It's sort of a shooter RPG wrapped around this complicated choose-your-own-adventure dialogue narrative. Um, and, it's, I mean, for one thing, I'm just thrilled to see that it's back. But we got a really good look at how it works sort of in the next generation, both in terms of the characters and in terms of new technology. So, obvious stuff out of the way. It looks gorgeous. And it, it just, also, it, it, it looked familiar. Like, it's it's a new generation system, but everything about it felt familiar enough that I was like, I while I was watching it, I was reaching for a controller so I could start playing it. Yeah, I was we, like, oh. We recognize the characters, we recognize the species, we recognize the technology. 
It's I was honestly I was a little surprised to see the same old conversation wheel come back up. It's, it's right. I mean it's a Mass Effect staple where you know, someone will ask you a question, you choose your responses. Like you, you can either you can be inquisitive or really simple or sort of be positive or be negative and mix the two. In the the gameplay video, the the player goes with an inquisitive, negative, a confrontational response, and a confrontational thing happens. So we see that that's back, and that's cool. Like, the dialogue and the characters really is the showpiece of Mass Effect. Now, i got to say, one of the things that sort of... It was a little concerning, I guess, and you'll have to forgive me. I don't remember the, the character's name from Mass Effect. I think it was 2 and 3. But the gangster woman... Oh, Arya Talok. Arya Talok. The, the... Played by... Um, is it Carrie Ann Moss? The Trinity? Yes, yeah. I believe it is. Played by Carrie Ann Moss. So that... There, there's a, a human woman character in this this trailer that struck me as so similar to Arya, it was a little... I don't know. It, too familiar A little at that too point. familiar. It was like, I want... I, I like this stuff, but I want to see something new. I don't want to just see a new skin on uh, uh, the same character. If this is supposed to be a whole new world, I want to experience new things. I don't want to see another lady gangster boss. And to be fair, we did see a lot of genuinely different stuff. Obviously, Very like, true. If, if anything, really closer to Mass Effect 1 than 2 or 3, I found. like In terms of the music... And just in terms of like exploring the world and like the wildlife, right? That kind of stuff. It, taking it really back to the series' roots, but then adding on the cool stuff they developed later. We see the character using you know, abilities tied to buttons and biotic shields, and she uses the biotic charge that mm-hmm. debuted. And was that in two that you could do? Could you oh, do it in man. two, or was it only in three? I don't remember. It, it just lots, you know, lots of cool stuff. And it's just reassuring to remember that you know, some video games really can be experiences. You know, Final Fantasy is a great example of that. Traditionally, mm-hmm. the game element is really just a vehicle to carry you through the story. But Mass Effect has always been fun to play on top of everything else. And it looks like they're sticking with that. It's still going to be fun to play. It's still fast-paced. It's still sort of got this shooter space adventure thing going for it. And it's, Very compelling. It's also got that great balance between the gameplay and the story. You know, there's parts in, in the other Mass Effect games where I was really excited to run around and shoot stuff, and then there are parts where I was really excited to actually talk to the crew and get to know people and find out what made these characters tick. Uh, another thing that, that struck me about the trailer is they talk a lot about exploring new worlds, and I was starting to get sort of a No Man's Sky vibe, where it's like, <laughs> it seems like there's a lot of planets for you to explore, and I wonder how many of the, how much of that is mandatory, how much of it is relevant to the story, how much of the story is guided by what planets you visit. Yeah, not a lot of hints on that yet. Uh, we still, what we do not have is a release date. We still don't really have details on what like it comes down to like how much it's it's going to be full price. We know it's going to be a full price game, but they haven't confirmed that. And I'm sure it's going to be another one of the things where it's like you pay full price for the game, and then there's like a ninety dollars seasons pass, so you're paying twice for the game, so you can get all the expansion packs as soon as they come out. None of that's been announced though. No. So it's still scheduled. It's on the docket for early 2017, which means, in video game terms, translated to English, means they're hoping to release it sometime. Yeah, next it probably year. means like Christmas 2017. It could. Um, you know, I gotta say though, from the the trailers that we've seen so far, it does look pretty complete. It looks playable. Yeah, certainly what we saw looks like a game that I would take off the shelf and buy. How much of it is actually finished and looks like that, we don't know. But they've got enough. Like they have a working engine, they have a working environment, they have stuff to do. It looks like it's going to work out. Mm-hmm. So two things: Geek Top Five is right on top of Star Trek Discovery and Mass Effect, both so close to our hearts. 
And of course, we will let you know anytime there's major news on either. In any case, we'll be right back for a special guest segment at Talking of Science Fiction Close to Our Hearts. Uh, so please, stay tuned. We'll be right back with you. And we're back for the second half of Geek Top 5. This week, we have another one of our famous patented roundtables. And once again, we are off uh, brand because we only have four people for our Geek Top 5 roundtable, but they're four excellent people, so hopefully that'll make up for it. Who do we have with us? Uh, I'm David Ansel, I, uh, a Geek Top 5 alumnus. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> well, I'm Joel Goldsberry, uh, first time visitor, happy to be here. Long time <laughs> listener, right? Yes. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> 100%. <clears throat> um... So what's going on here today is we've had like 20 episodes of Geek Top 5 and we have somehow managed to avoid talking obsessively about Star Wars. And that is like the geek topic of the day. Yeah. Star Wars is back. It's cool again. It, you know, what once... I don't know if it ever went away, but... but I, kind of, kind of I remember there were a lot of Gungan products on the shelves for a while. I had But a, it's I, back, and, I mean, listen, it's, you know, it's the era of reboots. Everything's getting rebooted. There was a RoboCop reboot, for God's sake. But Star Wars is back, and that's a huge deal, and we want to talk about why. I think to get us started, we should uh, sort of bring our credentials to the table. What? When did you start watching Star Wars? What is your earliest Star Wars memory? Well, I, I do remember my first Star Wars uh, experience. I was, I was in grade four, and our teacher was a huge Star Wars fan, and he loaned a bunch of us... Uh, the copies of his movies, and and we all got into it. And I, I remember it was grade four, nineteen ninety four, and we because that was around when they were starting to really write and get on the prequels. A few years later, I was convinced that it was because of us that Star Wars was rebooted, just because of our interest. Because it, all, <laughs> it all synced up together. And but I, I distinctly remember the first time watching it, the first time getting the movie, and I think it all started that there was like a little children's. A library book um, in in our school library of the Empire Strikes Back, and that's how it all started. Cool school, yeah. yeah. I I think also around ninety four, isn't that just about when they started doing the special editions again in theater, or maybe a couple years 97. after that? Ninety seven. Ninety seven was when the twenty fifth anniversary. Yeah, so twenty. When did Phantom Menace come out? Was ninety nine. Ninety nine. Okay, so I gave them two years to crank out all three special editions. That's I, that's yeah, doable. That's reasonable. How about you, Jess? Uh, in my case, I um. This is early, early 90s. Uh, my dad came home with one of these fancy new CD drives for a PC. Um, it was at 16 X's back when the... Wow. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's a lot of X's. No, a lot of X's. Many um, X's. Um, so I had this fancy CD drive, and it came with a bunch of you know CDs that you could put into the computer and play games, which is great. Uh, one of them was called Rebel Assault. And so I started playing this game, and I got to, I think it's the fourth or fifth level when you get into an X-Wing, and you're flying around a Star Destroyer, and you have to, like, basically you're looping around the Star Destroyer until you can kill the shields. And my mother walked by and looked at it, and she goes, you know there's a movie of that. <laughs> I kind of went, Mom, it's a video game, not a movie. You don't know what you're talking So she put A New Hope on, and I lost my mind. I remember I had to stop it twice Basically to run around and talk about how cool it was. First time a little bit after the cantina, and then during the trench run. Mm. Uh, and ever since then, totally addicted. 
I remember my first Star Wars memory was with the VHS versions of Star Wars. It was a remastered version. It's THX The THX, one? THX ones. The, the THX mm, yeah. version, but it also had a segment where George Lucas was being interviewed about the movie, which showed scenes from the movie... Before, Before the movie, the movie. played. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> oh, There's yeah. a lot of fast-forward wear and tear on that, those segments for me. Yeah, yes. yeah. the advent of DVDs with separate special features menus. Were, oh, it just yeah. worked for everybody, I think. It's ageism, that's what it is. Assuming <laughs> we've all seen exactly. the movie already. Yeah. So for me, I, my earliest memory is, I, I don't even know how young I was, but I was very young. Young enough that, uh, so I, I think my parents rented it. And we got to the when Darth Vader first appears, and he scared me so much we had to stop the the tape. And I, I don't think I watched it again for oh, years geez. and years. Yeah. So I mean, it really, when you think about it now, Darth Vader appears in like at least the first ten minutes of that movie. So I made it ten minutes into A New Hope before I had to, you know, clean my drawers. And, and... some of those minutes are the opening crawl, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I probably couldn't even read at the time. Yeah. So. It was like boring yellow words, then a space battle, then Darth Vader, then nothing. <laughs> uh, but it got better. Yeah, I only found that out much later. But uh, I, I think after that, I remember it really came up when I first met you, Jesse, when we were walking around the schoolyard and you would regale us with tales of Star Wars. Yeah. And then I had to go home and like catch up and watch the, the, the rest of the movies. Oh, God, did you feel like pressured? Like Probably. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> but it was a good pressure. I'm glad yeah. I did it. I was that kid. Like I had the books, and not just the books like with stories, like you would read them like a book, but like the technical novels. So like you would open it up, and it's like, here's a blueprint of a TIE fighter, and yeah. here's the... You know, they're manufactured at Sinar Fleet Systems, and they made out of this <laughs> alloy, and this is where you know, the Quandanium solar panel attached Like, that was me. I was right. a total nutcase. Um, I guess it hasn't changed. <laughs> okay, so how about another question to go around the table? There have now been seven Star Wars movies that we've all seen, and eighth is about to come out, uh, Rogue One. Uh, since this is a top five show... Let's narrow it down, and, and let's... What, what is your favorite of these Star Wars movies? Oh, um, I guess you can also count the Ewok movies. I was going to say, there's the Ewok movies and the Christmas special. and The Christmas special was a TV special. At least one of the Ewok movies actually had theaters, I'm pretty sure. <clears throat> uh, I, I would say, out of the four major motion pictures in wow. the Star Wars universe <laughs> uh, that have been released, nice. I would say uh, Empire Strikes Back has to be my favorite. It, it's It's... The one that typically most people will regard as their favorite. Um, I think it just objectively is an excellent film. Yeah. yeah. Even just beyond Star difficult. Wars, it's a well-done film. But in terms of my uh, at least top three for the original trilogy, mine's a little different because I typically go Empire, then A New Hope, then Return of the Jedi. I think that's a pretty standard rating. Like A lot of people hold Jedi in pretty low regard, uh, particularly because of the Ewoks. I mean, they're a cutesy marketing tool that defeat the Empire with without a shred of realism. And in terms of filmmaking, it doesn't really fit into the... Like you, like the, the, the movie, the pacing of the movie takes a huge slowdown when as soon as they hit the forest. Yes, but there are some people that it appeals to, such as my wife, who loves fluffy things. Mm -hmm. And so when the Ewoks hit, that was one of her favorite parts of the movie, and she definitely cried when that Ewok died. Oh. Oh. Okay, I think we all did, if we're being honest. <laughs> it was a very difficult scene, and I will admit... 
to anybody here and anybody who's listening that I did have to fast forward over that scene for most of my childhood because I did find it very upsetting. Wow. But well, he I, didn't know what happened to his friend. Oh. I was just, it was very moving. Well, I don't want to out myself here, but honestly, I felt worse for the scout walker that gets tripped up. Oh. And you're watching, and you can't quite keep its footing, and then right. it just falls down. It's like, oh. It had the, the little wobbly knees. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. What about the scout walker with the, the two logs smashing its head? Oh, that's awesome. That was great. <laughs> I have to admit, when I was younger and less cultured, Jedi was, was my favorite, I think. I think Jedi, I mean, let's, yeah, let's get back on task. A Jedi is still my favorite of the classic three. Really? Is it flawed? Absolutely. Are there parts I fast forward? Yup. But <laughs> I love all, like, you know, everything with Jabba I think is great. And the Battle of Endor is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just, everything, every single specifically, second. When you say the Battle of Endor, you you're right. specifically I mean, the space I battle. I mean specifically the space battle. You're right. I don't, yeah, again, I fast forward most of the foresty stuff. Right. I gotta say, the, the part I have the hardest time with in Jedi is the Luke and Leia oh. departure scene. Why must you confront him? It just is. Carrie Fisher. It seems so out of character. Like, all of a sudden, they completely change how they talk. They completely become different people. It was so weird. Even as a kid, I was like, this seems out of place. I think the out of character speech probably comes from the realization that that she is his sister. But even that is dumb like the way that's revealed is just i don't know i like i don't think the the fact that their brother and sister is dumb but i just think the fact that he's like and my sister, sister and she's is. like i always knew yes. you know it's just like so <laughs> weird joel what is well your it starts favorite? with the your sister yeah yeah uh, <laughs> my favorite i i i think i have to agree it's the the standard empire a new hope return of the jedi if I'm put on the spot to rank them. That being said, I agree with you that Jedi is fantastic. There are some fantastic moments. I like them all. I, I really, I, it's, if you put me to a wall, I will say five, four, six as my, as my top three. But I, I genuinely like them all. And it's, mm-hmm. if I'm going to watch them, it's sort of, I want to watch them all. It's true. Whole, yeah. And I think that's shared between everyone here. Uh, in fact, <laughs> only two, only episodes Five and six are connected. Four is not is loosely connected to the other ones yeah. because it sets up the events, but really stands as its own movie. That's true. It's not like like Lord of the Rings where you see Fellowship and it's like you have to see the other two to get it. A New Hope can stand as its own movie, which I think how trilogies should be done. And it's not like these days everything is a franchise right at the gate, regardless of whether the first movie deserves sequels or not. And I think that's a problem. I think like you should. Concentrate on making a, a first really good movie, and that's what Star Wars was. Like the original, the first time it came out, it was just called Star Wars. The Episode Four, A New Hope stuff came in re-releases. That <laughs> is true, but I find that ep- inserting Episode Four into the title was actually very intriguing to me, and the fact that we start the movie in the middle of a space battle, it, it it says that there is something that is supposed to happen before this. There were events before mm. it unknown to the viewer. And so you just have to move past that and accept it and accept what you're watching. And it's compelling. It makes you want to know what's going on. And the, the first time you see that movie, it's, wow, look at that. What's that? Who are these guys? What's going on? Why are they robots? Who is that guy in the black? Yeah. Like... It's a really yeah. good way to sort of invite you into totally. this world. Like Darth Vader 
you know, he makes reference to Darth Vader and, you know, how he's more machine now than man. And so you understand that he has a past. This is episode four. We're, we're starting in the middle. So it's so intriguing to think, well, what happened? How, why is he more machine now than man? Mm-hmm. And that hook, like, that's kind of what I wanted to, to bring up today, is that there's something about Star Wars that tons of other franchises don't have. There is something about it that makes it such a joyful, wonderful place that we all want to be. We all want to be there rather than here. Right? That, that's, we can all agree <laughs> Agreed. on that. Right? Agreed. Yeah. Uh, and I want to I see if we can figure out why. We can break it down. What is it about Star Wars? Why am I holding a lightsaber right now? <laughs> but if I mean, Getting to, too hardcore there. I don't want to go on a tangent, but to bring up Star Trek as a comparison, one of the things that I've always felt as a Star Trek and Star Wars fan is with Star Wars, maybe because of this episode four thing or because of the way that they introduced it to us, I all, I've always had this sense that the Star Wars universe is so much bigger and there's, mm-hmm. th- there is that sense of more going on. And I don't get that with Star Trek. And it's not a criticism of Star Trek at all. But with Star Wars, there's this bigness, this, this, this mm-hmm. depth or this, that this, it, it really is a massive universe that, that we're just getting a little, a little slice of. And I don't get that from Star Trek. Actually, speaking of that, one of my other favorite things about the Star Wars universe that I think separates it apart is that it has a very a lot of depth, but it's also very uh, linear, very on the surface in terms of the binary good and evil. Mm. The Sith are just mm-hmm. dark bad. You see Darth Vader, he's all dressed in black, he chokes people, and then we get Evil McEvilton... The uh, the emperor. Oh yeah, him. Yeah. Who, who comes in and <laughs> that guy. and they, those two are just evil characters. There's we don't need more depth to it. We want them to be the bad guy. They act as the bad guy and they fulfill that role. We don't need to ask more of them. So in a way, it's kind of the like the simplicity of understanding of it that appeals to you, and not just to you. I feel the same way, but. I guess trying to drag to draw this out, it's in a sense of not a purpose, but a sense of where you are. Like, is it that it feels good knowing these are the good guys, these are the bad guys, this is the side I want to be on? Yes, I think that a lot of people uh, really respond to that because you'll notice that there's not a lot of movies, not a lot of video games based on World War One. Most of them are based on World War Two mm-hmm. because we had the Nazis; they were evil. We know who the good guy is, we know who the bad guy is, and we like that. It's or like, when you think two. of World War One, you're like, I'm pretty sure the Germans were the bad guys in that one, but... It's Maybe so it was the Prussians. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's all like, more it's, it's Austria. Austria. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. it was very... Mm-hmm. But in Star Wars, Darth Vader is the bad guy. Yes. The, Emperor, the Empire is painted as the bad guys. It's the classic... Mm-hmm hero myth the like the classic hero myth of good and evil and and i think that that simplicity allows and this is something i i heard somewhere else recently but it really rang true it's like the simplicity of the story the good versus evil battle allows the rest of the universe to be as populated with with interesting details because you don't you know you you can get distracted by all the the aliens in the cantina you're like what is this what is that because it's not going to detract from the story because like the story's pretty easy to follow Whereas with Star Trek, the stories have a bit more depth to them. They're a bit more nuanced. And so the universe is a bit more 
plane and allows for more stories to be told within it without having to reflect back on the main storyline like that's why all the expanded universe books are so diverse and there's a, there's a whole rich extended universe to it oh, yeah so rich yeah we cannot really continue is. without mentioning that that mm-hmm. yes there have been these star wars movies but how many stories and characters and events are so close to our hearts that were in comic books or novels or video games or all the spin-off stuff there are like some of my favorite characters were never in the Star Wars movies, or like but, Wedge, who has uh, like Wedge four lines yeah. in the entire trilogy. He's mm-hmm. in every movie. Mm-hmm. He barely has a name in the movies, but he has such rich development in those books, which now don't even count. But so he, cool. He does appear in the the new canon books as well. Not very, not in any detail, but but yeah, there's so much is in there. I mean, our grade school library had the Last Command. The third book of the Grand Admiral Thrawn trilogy. Oh, wow. Which, you know, I read some of it and I was old enough to realize, okay, this is the third book. I'm going to double back here. But it's, it's a Star Wars book and it's not a book of the movie. It's something else. It's another story. And something like that was very new to me at the time. Like, you don't really see that with a ton of other stuff. No one made, like, The Lord of the Rings five years later. But just being able to expand this world is such a cool thing, and I think Star Wars does it uniquely well. Star Wars does have this mythical quality to it, I think, because, well, like you were saying, when in those books, like in the, um, the, the Thrawn trilogy, the original one, I thought he did a fantastic job of talking about the Clone Wars and what that was, how that happened, <clears throat> very different from the movies. But it, this, this idea of, of, of this mythical... They, when you hear, say, Obi-Wan talking to Luke in A New Hope, you get the sense that this thing happened hundreds of years ago as opposed to just 25 years ago or approximately. But within, like, that's that's within a person's lifetime. That's really not that long ago at all. But, it, but the old Republic, the old times before the Empire, it just seemed like so much more mythical than, than, than just 25 years ago. I think and, the other thing that helped with those expanded universe stories is that at the time we had no there there was no expectation that there would be sequels or prequels mm-hmm, it was like at a time where the when they started coming out it was something like at least 10 years after jedi came out when these books really started 91 or 92 was something like that okay, when, so, when, so close to 83 about yeah something like that and it, it was at that point. It was like, well, so much time has gone by since the last movie. There's no word that there's going to be anything more. Which is what happens with most movies. Yeah, most yeah. movies have a movie, and then that's the end of that story. And but the books allowed you to visit other parts of that universe, see the familiar characters uh, grow and change and and carry on. And you get to hear about things that are only like hinted at in the movie. I think a lot of that comes from Lucas giving you just a little bit of something awesome in the movies. That in the movies, we only see two Jedi. Mm. We only see two Sith. Mm. We don't get a lot of it. They don't explain the whole history, the whole background. And we want to know other Jedi that existed. We want to know this expanded universe. We want to see what happened before and Absolutely. after. This, and... Like, the Sith aren't even that clearly laid out. Are they even like, called the Sith in the original trilogy? Darth Vader is referred to as the Dark Lord of the Sith. Ah, okay. There's no mention of what the Emperor has to do with that. There's no mention of what the Sith are. 
the when Timothy Zahn was writing the Thrawn trilogy, the characters he wrote that became the Nogri, his original draft was that these were going to be the Sith. Because what are the Sith? Let's explore that. There's something about the vagueness in it. It's like there's a, just hints of details, but there, there's enough vagueness around it that you can build your own universe out of it. And we want to. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the trick. It's like you're saying, it's just a slow drip. And I want to explore it. I want to learn all this cool stuff. I want to know what's going on. I want to be on the ships. I love the ships. The ships are so cool. Well, that is one thing, is that when you see the ships, and you see all the different designs, all the letter designs, the X-Wing, the Y-Wing, the B-Wing, you want to know... What other letters are there? An entire alphabet of starfighters. Yeah. <laughs> some of which got a little out of hand in some of the expanded universe stuff. You know, the K-Wing bomber. Yeah. It's like, all right, you, you, you reel it in there, buddy. But, <laughs> yeah, the Q-Wing just wouldn't really work. All right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, all, we all saw the robot chicken special, right? <laughs> so, I did not. Oh, God, oh, you should do that. Horrible. I know, it's on the list, but, you know, it's nice to... Always reserve something. But that's another wonderful thing, is the parody of Star mm. Wars mm. that also is, is very rich. The loving parody, though. It's like, there's the depth of the parodies that have been done on it from Mad Magazine, from uh, Robot Chicken, from Family, Family Guy. Guy. It's mm-hmm. like, there's... And they all have unique jokes. There's There's no... Like, it's not just rehashing the same joke over and over again. They, The universe is rich enough that there's a ton to parody there. And we all know Seth MacFarlane's Emperor Palpatine is yeah. phenomenal. He's oh. <laughs> one of my favorite animated characters of all time. So good. Now, one thing I want to say. We've been dancing around it the whole podcast. Uh-oh. we got to address the, the elephant in the room, uh, the prequels. Mm-hmm. We have been tiptoeing around them. And I, it's really easy to, to talk about the bad parts of them, but let's, how about we take a moment and, and reflect on the positives of the prequels. Anything good you can think of to say about the prequels? There have been very few movies for uh, people that are interested in the intricacies of intergalactic trade embargoes. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. true. <laughs> The galaxy is in turmoil. The taxation of trade routes is in dispute. Very dramatic opening. Oh, yes. Uh, no, um, no, there were some good parts. The, I mean, if there's one thing George Lucas does really well, it's speed. Um, and that came... Like, no, there's, there's always like a chase. Yeah. Or a dramatic... Like, and the pod race scene, like, it's silly and it's, it's marketed for very young viewers. But it's a blast to watch. He's also a racing fan, isn't he? Lucas, like a big F1 fan or something? Well, American Graffiti is all about the cars. So he's got a car thing. But the pod race is really exciting to watch. Like, the sound design in it is great. Like, the the crazy sounds. I can talk about the sound design of those movies day and night. Don't get me started on the sound design. Yeah. The sound design was incredible. My only issue that I take with the pod race was that the outcome was clearly predetermined. Mm. Yeah. But... And the pod race lasts about 10 minutes of you know exactly how it's going to oh, But end. it was so exciting to watch. I know pizza is going to taste like, but I still like eating it. Yeah. You know, one of the like things that was... Get made? <laughs> Honestly, it's kind of fun. They toss it up into the air. It comes back down. <laughs> um, the pod race is great. Uh, Duel of the Fates... That piece is of music. Yes, great excellent. piece of music. Uh, like very silly choreographed sword fight, but still fun to watch. 
you know, Darth mm-hmm. Maul's cool looking and the double-sided lightsaber. Hard to deny he, the coolness of he's that. He's the Boba Fett of they the prequels. They ruined yeah. it, though. In it, the trailers. In the trailer. Right? Imagine if you didn't know it was and a double-sided they, lightsaber. Does the, yes. the move that he does and you had no idea. I would have died. Oh, yeah. It would have... That's true. It, that would be all that I remember from the first three. Yeah, from the Terminator 2 school of making trailers. They blew mm-hmm. that. Um, Attack of the Clones had Samuel L. Jackson. It's also my favorite of the prequels. Really? Yes. Wow. I don't. I don't apologize for it. I don't. I, I'm not going to make excuses for Episode Two, but it is definitely. I was most entertained by it for whatever reason. I liked. The, I liked Yoda with his little. Yeah, I was going to say the Yoda Count Dooku fight. Yes, it was. Eh, see, I don't like that Yoda. I, I I agree. I don't, I, you know, logically and taking a step back, I would prefer a Yoda who is more intellectual and didn't have to fight. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. in a world where there's fighting Yoda, it's a pretty cool fight scene. It could have been more ridiculous than it was. I think that they they yeah. pulled it off. They and pulled and off to be scene. fair, it follows on the heels of a terrible fight scene. I don't know if you guys have seen that recently, where the Anakin Dooku fight in that. Yeah. There are shots where it's a close-up of their faces, and they just wing the color back and forth. So it'll be a close-up of Hayden Christensen, and there's a blue light playing admit, across his face for like 10 or 11 seconds. I kind of like the, the style of that. I agree it's not great for a choreographed fight scene, but I kind of like that it's left to your imagination. It's just a cool visual. Now, so we haven't mentioned episode three really at all, and and I feel like in my my viewings of the movies, episode three tends to be my my favorite of the prequel ones. But I couldn't tell you a single part of it in isolation that mm-hmm. I really like. There, I mean, for about twelve seconds of the opening, the big space battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that movie starts with the crawl, and then it's the two fighters going across the bow of the star destroyer, and then the camera follows them over it. Yeah. And your senses are overwhelmed. There's this huge space battle going on. That's cool. They ruin it immediately by not doing a space battle and having them fight the stupid droids. Right. Um, And then later on, like, the Order 66 montage is pretty... That's true. Like, the attack on the temple and all over the galaxy, all the betrayals are happening. Like, that's that's a pretty powerful scene. I haven't been doing enough of this, but Order 66 was the order given to the clone troopers to kill the Jedis they were with. And that's how the Jedis all get... We're left with Obi-Wan and uh, Yoda as the sole surviving Jedis by time a new hope rolls around. Sorry, I had to yeah, explain a little fair bit. Enough. Um, so those are those are both, I think, done really well. Uh, the rest of the movie... And you know what? Ian McDiarmid, he's one of the best parts of the prequels. He plays Emperor Palpatine and in all the movies. he gets some really good scenes in, in Episode 3. It's when they're at the opera, and he's doing the... You know, Have you ever heard the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise? Like, that whole thing is fantastic. Yeah. He's great. It, the scene is hurt that Christensen is not... Yeah, but the, but the the portrayal of I'm secretly the evil emperor in that is fabulous. I mean, Ian McDermott is chewing the scenery in those scenes, but he's he's enjoying chewing it so much. He's like making the scenery delicious. Well, but that's oh, what, that goes back yes. to Dave's point, right? Like, it's not subtle. It's not. It's, yeah. There's good guys and there's bad guys, yeah. and he's a bad guy. No, he has about seven evil head turns in that. Yeah, maybe in that one siege alone. <laughs> yeah. Is it possible to learn this power? Turn Mm. not from a Jedi. It's like, oh! Palpatine almost was evil to the point of pointlessness. Like, it was almost so over the top. It was almost overwhelming that... Just forget about the movie and the... 
the actual plot, but the actual the character was probably I can't think of a, another character that was that evil, at least in my mind. Anyway, we're coming up on time. Um Aww. really quick, just give me a quick one word answers. Favorite ship. I my gut instinct was Slave One, but I've been thinking about Slave One a lot lately. That's Boba Fett's ship. Okay. Joel? Home one. Home one. Okay. Home one. Interesting. That's that's Admiral Ackbar's Admiral Ackbar's yeah. command ship. Really in Admiral Ackbar's back pocket. I, 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 you got a lot of Corellian money. Or, no. What is it? Corellian? No. No, they're Mon Calamari. Mon Calamari. Damn it. TIE Interceptor. Oh, oh yeah, that's a fantastic ship. That's the, op- the opposite of the X-Wing. It's like the X-Wing's Sweet. rival. Right. Um, in my case, I'm going to go with Imperial Star Destroyer. Classic. I just, there's something about that ship design. Super Star Destroyer? Not so much the Super Star Destroyer. I don't like the like the city architecture on top. Oh. I think it looks a little silly. But the classic Imperial Star Destroyer. I don't know what it is. The wedge shape. Yeah. It's just, again, wedge. I can yeah, I was going to say. Home one. <laughs> <laughs> that is my answer. Fair enough. Um, I don't know. I just want to mention how awesome lightsabers are. Is there any way to mention that into a discussion? Uh, I think we can accept that as an axiom. I, I think one of the, the downsides of the prequel trilogy is that they made the lightsabers so ubiquitous and so generic. Like, everyone, all the Jedi either had a green one or a blue one. There was no personalization. They were just constantly losing and getting lightsabers. Yeah, why not an orange? Yeah, yellow. Yeah. The only unique ones were... Uh, Samuel Jackson's purple one and Darth Maul's double-sided one. Other than that, they seemed interchangeable. Whereas in oh, the Dooku had his curved hilt. That's true. Yeah. But the uh, in the the original trilogy, the lightsabers seemed precious and rare, and it's like they were all unique. Mm-hmm. And and Luke builds his own in in Return of the mm-hmm. Jedi. So there was something special about them, and we sort of get back to that a bit in Force Awakens with uh, Kylo Ren's sort of weird, hilty. Yeah, he had, he had quite figured out how to make one. Yeah. yeah. Well, Star Wars. Like, we could do this all night, but you've got other things to do. You're listening to us in the car or on the walk or whatever. Uh, Star Wars is great. If you're listening to the podcast, I'm not going to tell you to go watch it because you've seen it. That's <laughs> not like. But go see Rogue One. It's coming out soon. But go see Rogue One. It's going to be phenomenal. We'll give you our review of it as soon as we see it. I've already got my tickets for the Friday night. It's on Mike Alderaan. I like it. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Geek Top 5. We'd like to say a big special thanks to our guests. Dave, thanks for coming by. Joel, it's a pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to be here. Back again. Graham, you're a nice guy. And I'm Jesse. (laughs) We also want to say special thanks to our crew, to Stella Simeonova for getting this all online, to Ben Sound, bensound.com. And as always, thanks to you for listening. And honestly... You're the best part about this, and we want to hear from you. We want to hear what you want to hear. We want to hear what you think. We want to hear if you know who Porkins is. Uh, please shoot us an email. Shoot us a Facebook. Graham, where are we? The best way to get a hold of us is through email. That's geektop5 at gmail.com. We can also be found on Facebook at facebook.com slash geektop5. We're also on Twitter at geektop5. And you can also leave us a review on uh, iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Geek Top 5, we'll talk to you again soon.